Welcome to the Horror Lab, where we dissect the best in horror movies each and every week. I'm your co-host, Will, and alongside me, I've got my co-host, Chris. Guys, we're diving into part two of our episodes on the movie Psycho. First episode, we talked general themes, large themes. We gave some backstory to the movie, synopsis, all that good stuff. But it wasn't nearly enough conversation. It wasn't uh, nearly enough time to cover all of the things that we wanted to cover. We have some interesting theories. We have some interesting uh, themes to point out. This movie is really super influential in a lot of ways. And uh, it's pretty deep. It's like sort of sort of like crawling down the rabbit hole, you know. And uh, back in the day, I used to get lost on YouTube sometimes. You know, you'd start with one video and then you'd like, before you knew it, an hour, you were an hour in and you were 25 videos deep into yeah. other things. And uh, I feel like this movie is that kind of rabbit hole where you start out in one place and you end up in another. So we're going to do a, a pretty deep dive for the next little bit. And uh, I'm excited. I, I was telling Chris that I had this towards the end of our episode last week, or maybe even after we stopped recording, I mentioned that, hey, I, I had this weird theory about a theme in the movie. And um, he's like, yeah, that sounds plausible. I did some research and it was really hard to find info on my theme. Like I was 100% researching for confirmation bias. Like I didn't care about anything else. I just wanted someone to say, Will, you're right, even without using those words. And uh, I found one thing. So that one thing is going to be what I use as my research and as my <laughs> backbone of my theory. So that's what it is. All right. So let's let's just dive in. Um, we did a synopsis last episode. If you've never seen Psycho, uh, definitely give it a watch. Easily one of the most uh, influential films. Forget about horror, but just films in general. Um, an absolute classic. Alfred Hitchcock is a legend. I think it's like... 38 on IMDb's list, no, number 34 out of 250 movies. Pretty high. And yeah. um, if you take away some of the movies that probably don't belong 33 spots higher than Psycho, it probably would be in a top 20 somewhere. There's a, there's a couple of questionable, like, top 30 movies up on that list that are like, nah, I don't know about that. Maybe yeah, not. I don't know about you, Forrest Gump. Yeah, right. Good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I love The Dark Knight, but I'm not sure it belongs at number two or number three. It might even be number one right now still. It was for a little while. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. you know, movie watching is so subjective. But our objective lists say that Psycho should be higher than 34. Yeah. So. The movies on the list are pretty good. (laughs) I mean, there there are some really good ones, though. I'll say that. Shawshank Redemption, Godfather 1, 2. Seven. um, Yes. Oh, seven's terrific. Top 10 for sure. All right. Let's dive in. Chris, um, let's start with – let's start with the theme. What what did we not cover that we should have covered? What discussion do we need to have on on movie themes? Yeah. Um, I, I think a big one is probably masculinity. Okay. I think a lot of the men in this movie are impotent and not only sexually because, you know, Norman Bates can't have normal sexual relationships. He he like distorts his sexual fantasies in a really profoundly, deeply disturbing psychological way. But also just like with familiar roles, like um, Norman's dad's not around. He hated his uh, his mom's lover. Sam Loomis can't get married because he's like chained down with debt 
doesn't know that Norman killed all these people. And even the psychologist at the end, oh, Abregas, he ends up getting himself killed as soon as he starts yep. investigating. And even the psychologist at the end, he's explaining how everything's going on. And he's like, well, this is what happened. And uh, we're too late to do anything, <laughs> you know. And so, yeah, even at the um, – which is really cool. We can probably talk more about it later. But even um, the closing shot, I, I didn't recognize this the first time around. I should have paid attention more carefully. Um, I watch all my movies on, on the iPad because the TV's too bright at night and might wake up my daughter. Um, yeah, Um we get that really creepy close-up shot of Norman and his mom's skull is superimposed on it. And so uh, it's very, very slight, very, very subtle. And uh, when they pulled the, the car out of the swamp, the chain is actually superimposed through the two bodies. And so it seems like, um, I mean, it, like Norman's personality is overtaken by his mom's. And so I thought it related really well to the theme that you theory you were suggesting about how this is like the death of the American dream, like the death of the golden age of America that everyone thinks about the fifties. Um, I think about, you know, um, I love the Sopranos and Anthony Soprano always talks about how his ideal man is Gary Cooper, the strong silent type. And that doesn't really exist in this movie. Uh, everyone, all the men are really bad at, being like the archetypal classic strong American man who knows how to provide. Yeah. Oh, I like it. Yeah. Thank I, you. <laughs> I, uh, I like it. I, I, uh, I definitely noticed the, uh, the super, you know, the superimposed shot of the, the yeah. skull on Norman Bates's face. I did not until you mentioned it five minutes ago. Um, notice the chain on the car being pulled and that sort of that scene shift. Um, yeah. it just didn't. So, we all learn new things, guys. That that was pretty good. I, I like the uh, the simplicity, but like the effectiveness of that kind of symbolism there. Um, would is it is it a stretch to say this is a way out in left field? But you, you mentioned you know impotence in in terms of the ma- the men in the movie. Um, would you consider Norman to be like a sexual sadist, someone who achieves? sexual fulfillment gratification even climax let's say through violence and murder yeah i mean i don't know that that term existed in the 60s yeah 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 because you know um i i love so i read a lot about serial killers i I don't know what that says about me (laughs) and i really loved manhunter which is directed by um executive produced by david fincher who did a lot of serial killer movies. And like so seven. 60s and 70s is when a lot of America, you know, started researching serial killers. And so um, I think that, yeah, concept didn't really exist back no, then. I don't think you know, when did. they made this movie. And so I think in hindsight, you know, when they recreated the uh, peeping hole scene, the shower scene in, um, you know, the, uh, Gus Van Sant's remake and even the Bates Motel, um, Norman is shown as, you know, masturbating. Right. And so they probably like kind of superimposed that, that, um, that idea, that idea. Yeah. That concept that, you know, a lot of serial killers psychologically, um, uh, start people, you know, they do get sexual gratification out of killing people. And so, um, based on the movie, 
and how it's interpreted, it seems like Norman actually really regrets killing um, Marion Crane. Um, so maybe he's not such not so much a sadist as he's this this really just disturbed and scarred. Yeah, and he, you know. Yeah, that's good. That's that's helpful. I I think if I remember right, the the term serial killer wasn't coined until the the seventies. Yeah. Um. So even then, it, I mean, you're still at least a decade away before that that term being used or you know being more mainstream, that kind of thing. Um. So you mentioned it earlier, and when you were when you were sharing that, uh. I had a theory about the American dream or that this movie sort of is a uh, symbolic or representative of the death of the American dream. It's a, I, at the time that I mentioned it two or three days ago, I, I felt like it was a really underdeveloped idea. I just sort of, you know, was watching it about an hour before we recorded again. And, um, it just occurred to me, like there's some really given the timing of the movie 1960 and giving some of what the, some of the movie depicts, it feels like there might be some commentary there. Um, culturally, obviously at 1960, Vietnam war, civil rights movement, or like the meat of the civil rights movement. Um, you know, the, the sort of, uh, flower power generation, all that stuff was still on the way, right? There's no way, it wasn't really no way to predict that kind of thing in 1960, but coming out of the fifties, right. You had world war two at the end of mid, mid end of, uh, of the 1940s. Then you moved into the Korean war. You know, and then uh, So the, the the death of the American dream or the destruction of the American dream or something to do with the American dream, however you want to look at it, it, it seems like culturally coming out of the 50s, you know, the 50s were this sort of, you know, a lot of people refer to it as like this idyllic time and, you know, it's, you know, the good old days, the golden era of, you know, America, Americana, that kind of stuff. But really, culturally, there was a, there was a lot going on, right? You had McCarthyism, you had the the... Cold War, the start of the Cold War. You had yeah. the beginning and end of the Korean War. There, were, there was a lot of tumult in in the world around. It was um, a crazy time. It really was. It wasn't. It wasn't like uh, Happy Days, <laughs> you yeah, know? or like Pleasantville. There were there was definitely some pretty chaotic stuff. The start of the Civil Rights Movement uh, that was only going to pick up steam for the next decade and a half. And so, uh, on the surface, you have this this conflicting messaging. Where it's like the good old days, but the good old days are overshroud, right? Overshadowed by this dark, nasty storm cloud, you know, of sorts. It felt like the movie was sort of speaking to that in a way. Um, I have here in my notes. I actually took notes, guys. 
have here in my notes that, uh, and, and we mentioned sort of in the first episode, Marion is, is running uh, out of guilt, right? And fear. But that, yeah. that guilt and fear uh, was the result of her own greed, right? She stole $40,000. She just took it and ran. And so Marion is in, I mean, she's an unlikely suspect for that kind of thing. You know, not, she's the least likely person you would expect to, to be a, a, a thief. <laughs> and so she's on the run, right? She's got this greed stuff, but then she ends up at the Bates motel, which Nor- Norman Bates by all appearances is, is living the American dream. He's got a home, he's got a business, right? But that business is failing miserably, right? He even says at one point, like, well, I don't even take, keep a logbook anymore because no one shows up here. You know, Thank God. <laughs> yeah, seriously, that, that's because they show up. It's like Hotel California. You you show up, but you can never leave, right? Because he he kills you. <laughs> and so maybe maybe Hotel California is referencing the Bates Motel. I don't know. Anyway, but you have this uh, this almost this picture, right? This this symbol of you know not all that glitters is gold. Owning a home, you know. Uh, seemingly normal home life, right? He takes care of his mom. He's got this business, but all of it is just a cover for the rot underneath the whole thing, you know? And so um, the American dream is not just built on, you know, capitalism and, you know, business and prosperity, but it's also built on the family, which the movie really depicts uh, some really awful family dynamics um, across the board, right? You have, uh, and this connects to what you were saying, Chris, right? Sam and Marion, like they they have some dysfunction in their relationship. They obviously can't accomplish the goals that they want because he's got, you know, crushing debt, whatever it is. And so she just she says, Well, screw that, I'm out. Yeah, <laughs> she yeah. just takes off. And he's divorced, which is <laughs> yeah. pretty taboo for that day. Yes, for sure. Um, you know, people get divorced or people don't get married these days. And so, but back then, back then in the, the late fifties, you you become pariah. Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was definitely a scarlet letter type of situation. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you have the obvious dysfunctional, sadistic, murderous, awful. There's probably 5,000 adjectives we could use to describe yeah. the relationship between. <laughs> Somebody give me a thesaurus. <laughs> yes, seriously. We could spend a whole episode just going, just saying words and it would, yeah. <laughs> you know, but you have the, the sort of uh, even unconventional relationship between mother and son, right? Yeah. Um, on the surface, he looks like a, a caring caretaker who's, uh, you know, tending his ailing mom, a doting son, that kind of thing. But really, it, you know, there's just rotten underneath all of that. So to me, th- those things undermine the concept of the American dream as it was yeah. ex- experienced or expressed in in that era. Um, this movie seemed to sort of subvert some of those ideas and say, well, you know, it's just not true. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it actually reminded me a lot of the discussions we had. For the whaling episode, because you know, back in you know, something that Americans like to believe is just the uh, in the authority of institutions, and so um, something we witnessed throughout the pandemic is we really can't trust our institutions, right? Um, on all sides of the political spectrum, right? And so, you know, part of uh, American culture is like you believe that everyone's going to do the right thing can trust the institutions to like have your back what you know you see throughout the movie the police officers don't have the slightest clue as to who norman bates really is yeah um the bank will lose your money because you know 
your secretary just gets an impulsive thought about running away with $40,000. And so, yeah, it's it's kind of a bleak movie. It is. It's yeah, really yeah. bleak. Yeah. And, it, and it ends it ends in this like uh, I don't know I don't know how to describe the ending it, it's um it's not satisfying yeah at not. all like it it there's no like neat ribbon where you know bow tie where you're like yeah that that was like a really satisfying conclusion it just sort of ends abruptly yeah um, and I don't know if that was intended because if they did that intentionally, to set up a sequel. I, I doubt that that was the case. I think it was maybe meant to be more of an open-ended discussion, um, sort of, you know, to, to sort of start conversations about what this movie is about, what it could yeah. symbolize, what it means. You know, I think the best movies probably make us sit down and question. Obviously we're doing a whole podcast on the movies that make us question stuff. So yeah, I think in that sense it, it, it occurred, but, or it was successful, but man, it was so unsatisfying. Yeah, it's like um, just that superimposed shot of just Norman, his mom, and the car all together. It's like you can't keep your skeletons in the closet. Everything comes out. Oh, that's good. Yeah, and uh, which doesn't make you feel good. <laughs> that's good. Oh, man. I had, a, I had a really bad pun just now enter my brain about um, not skeletons in the closet, but mummies. You know, mommy and mummy. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, I, I should quit. I should retire while I'm not even on top. I should just quit. I should just retire. Dad jokes have come out. Which it's fits because there are no dads in this movie. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Oh. That is Guys, This is bad. I'm entering yeah. the, uh, the dad sphere with the dad jokes and such. <laughs> oh. Could not come at a better time. Lord, okay, so I had um, I had a thought, Chris. So I have, I've. Let's talk about like a question I have. So I I know we talk about this movie and rightly so as the first slasher movie, sort of created its own subgenre of horror movies. Well, well earned sort of title, okay, first slasher. But I also had the thought: Is this movie also gothic horror? I mean, you have you have a Victorian style house. You know, you have the sort of love interest. You have the sort of uh, I think you have the elements of what makes up a little bit of a a good gothic horror movie. Maybe it doesn't fit exactly, but I, I, that thought anyway. That thought just crossed my mind that I wonder if this fits what gothic horror is. Maybe as the first potentially gothic horror film. You know, I didn't think that at all. Okay. Um, but now that you say it, I could kind of see it just with the, the ambience. Um, yeah. And just the elements they use in the movie. Because, you know, something I was reading about, e- even the movie Parasite, which is, you know, yeah. more like a political satire thriller. Um, they're saying it's more like a revolutionary gothic uh, just because you know it really rails about you know capitalism and stuff like that. Sure, um, but they all have the uh, yeah. I, I I think the the setting is really important and, and it gets there, especially with the with the closing scenes with the especially in the in the house and yeah. the fruit cellar. I would definitely get that. Yeah. 
<laughs> you guys know, if you've been listening to us for any amount of time, you guys know I always, every so often, I'll throw out this wild idea that just enters my brain space. And I'm like, Chris, what about this? And I could, you guys can't see Chris's face because you guys are listening on, you know, audio streaming. But when I, half the time when I say it, Chris gives this look into the camera like, Dude, what the f- what are you talking about? <laughs> no, that's not true, Will. <laughs> He's running into it. Maybe maybe I'm just uh I'm projecting my own facial features <laughs> forward. But I, I just that third that thought occurred to me that you know, it it has some of the elements of what gothic horror would be even if we don't necessarily consider it gothic horror. Um I did have another theory, Chris. And in the first episode you mentioned the use of mirrors or you mentioned mirrors. Um, I wonder if there's a part of the movie that deals with like, I, I think, I think it'd be an easy connection to make just the duality of human beings. Yeah. How sometimes what you see is not all that's there. Yeah. You know, um, I, I don't know. There, there's so many mirror scenes in the film yeah. from the opening shot, right? When she's in the room with Sam to, uh, you know him. There, there seems to be even this uh, this sort of approach to the fourth wall in some of the scenes where you take on the point of view of of the killer, or it, it just seems like there's some some concept there about duality yeah. and dual natures, or you know, can't judge a book by its cover. Kind of. What, what do you What do you think? I realize I'm I'm throwing this at you literally on the fly. No, no, <laughs> no. I- there is definitely duality, you know. There's there's Norman and there's Mother. Yeah. Um. There's. Oh, you know, that's Marianne. good. Yep. Oh. <laughs> that's good. Keep yeah, going. yeah. Keep going. Keep going. There, there's Marion and the uh, the fake name she uses. I forgot what it was. What was it? Oh shoot. I'm I'm gonna Google it now. Yeah, yeah. Um. And even like Marion and her sister Lila. Um. This is funny. Like, it seems like Lila has more of a marital relationship with Sam that, you know, that Marion had herself. Yeah. Marie so, Samuels. Marie Samuels. Yeah. So there's a lot of um, mirroring, like literal mirrors and just um, a lot of dichotomies. Yeah. Juxtapositions. And so. I feel good. I feel, yeah. I feel better. You obviously have the... Uh, it's so weird because even even like um, Norman's mom, there, there's a duality there for her too. Even though she's like a, a pretty much like an NPC for, <laughs> for for the whole movie, like she's just a mummy in the basement. Yeah. But you know, people assume on the one hand that she's you know sort of a, a recluse, someone who's infirmed, and so that's that's one how people identify her as. That's how we were you know sort of how she was explained to the audience. But then she obviously has this more sinister place in, you know, in uh, in Norman's psyche and heart and mind and yeah. actions, right? So, all right, I feel I feel like I'm uh, closing in on two for two, three for three. I don't <laughs> think I've ever swung the bat this well, guys. Okay, come on, you're too definitely hard on should, I definitely should retire now. All right, Chris, what else? What else? What else sticks out? What do we need to? What do we need to talk about? Oh shoot. Um, like I brought my my game, but I guess not. Masculinity, family. Um, well, how about I don't know. How about you? 
I don't, I didn't, honestly, I didn't have a whole lot else. Um, yeah. I mean, we talked about repressed sexuality, that kind of thing. We talked about the American dream. We talked about family. I don't know. We, we even, we even mentioned the idea of like voyeurism as, Oh yeah. You know, in the first episode. Um, yeah. There's definitely just the, um, comes with the male gaze. We, we look at through a lot in, uh, through Norman's eyes, which is, you know, pretty unsettling. It is unsettling. Hitchcock movies are very psychological. And so, um, I think it's pretty rare for, especially in the sixties where we kind of get a sense of what the characters are actually thinking. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, I, in the last episode we, we talked about, we see a lot of things through Marion's perspective as she's driving away, just her inner conflict, uh, symbolized by the rain and the storm she's driving through. And, uh, even the mother's voices, that's, that's all Norman. Um, and so, yeah, I, I thought that was really cool. Um, Alfred Hitchcock was a very interesting person. It's very creepy. Um, had a very interesting relationship with with all his uh, leading ladies, and they all tended to be blonde. And so, um, I think uh, some of the movies that came out ten years, the last 10, 15 years, have kind of tried to explore his own psychology and how he was kind of like a repressed sexual fiend, almost um, kind of a precursor to uh, Me Too. And so he's kind of abusive to. Uh, I forgot the name of the actress who was in The Birds and Marnie, but. Apparently, he was pretty cruel to her. Really? Um, yeah. Um, it kind of makes sense because his movies are kind of disturbing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And so uh, I, I think uh, Psycho was his first real horror movie, but all his movies are very disturbing. A little, little deranged. Yeah. <laughs> so, even, uh, you know, even in Rear Window, uh, voyeurism is like a huge element. It, it yeah. kind of like it's the vehicle for the whole thing. So, yeah. And even, Which is, um, I always find voyeurism to be, I mean, creepy is not the right word. Creepy is like an understatement for how I yeah. feel about it. It's, um, I, I mean, I always, I don't like invasions of privacy. Yeah. And so, um, there's a part of me that gets really angry when that kind of thing like happens. Yeah. You know, but then there's also a part of me that just shrivels up. Yeah. <laughs> like this, it just feels grimy and skeezy yeah. and like, ugh. Yeah, I think we we mentioned oh, I forget which episode it was, but you know David Fincher, who, who's a great you know director, directs a lot of a couple of horror movies, but you know his philosophy is everyone's a pervert, <laughs> and so even like the concept of just watching a movie and watching these people's lives unfold on the screen, it almost feels like you, you know for sure you, you're you know peeping tall. <laughs> For sure, I mean, yeah, yeah. F- what film, oh. film watching is uh, is voyeuristic, it's sort of in in nature, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Even if it's just an, as an escape from our own reality to yeah. look into or peek into the perceived reality of someone else is, I mean, that's what voyeurism is. <laughs> you know, it's, it is what it is. I had a, I okay, so I did have a second theory okay. on on the idea of um, the point of views in particular, right? So I did notice that there's two. Types of point of view shots in Psycho. One is from the point of view of Marion, right? But those that point of view is always facing her. We always see her face. Yeah. Whether that's in the car driving or that's 
um, in the opening scenes, whether it's, you know, during the, the beginning of the shower scene, right after she's killed and that zoom out shot from her eye to, you know, to her face, it always feels like the camera's face forward looking at her. I sort of interpreted that as Hitchcock wanted the audience to be detached from her character, sort of on the outside looking in almost in a narrative sense. Like this is a character, things are happening. They're happening to her, but you're a passive observer of those things, right? Versus the, a lot of the point of view shots with let's say Norman are first person point of views. We're literally seeing it through his eyes, right? We take, we see, we look through the peephole, we see, uh, the hand coming down. It's almost as if it's our hand, right? Um, when he kills Arbogast, you see those slashes again, almost like, you know, we're the ones wielding the knife and then the tracking shot of Arbogast falling down the stairs. Like it looks like almost as if Norman is, you know, walking with him as he's falling, which, and, and I sort of interpreted that as uh, more of a, more of a connection. Like Hitchcock wanted us to have a connection specifically with Norman Bates, which is, effed up if, <laughs> if you think yeah. about it in that in that way because really what what it feels like he's trying to do again with that duality of, of norman right this uh sort of uh, unassuming business owner who wants to have milk and bread with marion right you have empathy for him you almost feel sad for him he almost and he almost seems like he's stuck in a time capsule of you know being a teenage boy who doesn't you know doesn't know how to relate to people Right. Yeah. But then by the time it's revealed that he's the murderer, you almost feel gross for like having that level of empathy. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> wait a minute. I, I can see that. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Like, so it almost feels like the use of the point of view shots was intended to elicit some sort of emotional reaction yeah. from the viewer, or emotional connection from the viewer to the character. Obviously, Hitchcock killing off, you know, Marion Crane in the first act. It don't, you, you don't have enough time to empathize with her. You know, all you know is that she's stolen money, she's on the run, and now she's dead. Yeah. So the one character who's drawn out and has this massive character development is Norman Bates, which it feels kind of gross to connect to Norman Bates as like this tragic hero, <laughs> even though he's not. That's interesting because, you know, with a lot of the uh, the murder shot, murder scenes – I, I I took them as revealing just how Deranger's view is uh, his point of view is because oh. um, I think there are ninety spliced shots in the shower scene. Okay, and so it's like really frenzied. It and is. So you know when you're like when your adrenaline is spiking, um, you're not really thinking straight. And so I thought it was I thought it was supposed to represent just this sexual frenzy. Um, ah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So even with the the, the scene when he kills Abergast, there's like a really, um, I'm pretty sure it's like a like a dolly zoom shot, you know, and it it um, is so extreme. So yeah. it, it shows that you know something is not right right in this uh, killer's mind. So that's how I took it uh, took it. So I didn't really th- thought, think it was as empathetic as as. You know, you said so. I'll definitely have to rewatch the movie. Oh, I love, I love this part of it where it's interesting, right? Two people watching the same movie, really seeing a lot of similar things, also seeing some really different things. And, yeah. and I wonder if, 
that's uh, that's a matter of like personality or life experience, you know, experiences that we've had, that kind of thing. Um, You're a lot nicer than I am. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't know about that, man. Um, I just, I, I, I maybe by virtue of my profession too, there, there is a part of, part of it that, like, I, I find side like a sidebar. I, I find people fascinating, and that's. That's not to say that all people are nice and kind and gentle, you know, cuddly and warm. Uh, I mean, people are, people do awful things. And yet I still find it fascinating what, what compels them to, to those actions and those, you know, behaviors and that kind of thing. So there's, there's always a part of me that can look at someone like Norman Bates and be like, what, like, what the hell on one end? But then also like, but why? What the hell? <laughs> yeah. You know, like I'm, like I'm, I'm like completely bothered by what what he's done. But I'm also like really interested to know what got him there. Like the, yeah. the psychology of what brings a person to make the decisions they do or, or do the actions that they you know commit the actions that they commit. So I don't know. I don't know what that says. I don't know if that says anything. But yeah, that's my closing statement on. In my defense. <laughs> no, I, um, movie watching is very subjective. And it so, is. you know, you know, there are a lot of recent movies that critics hated, but people loved. Yeah. You know, every, people love Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League cut. Critics hated it. <laughs> what, did, what did Chris think about it? Um, I liked it. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, his movie is a little... I think his movies are a little pretentious, and so sure. um, yeah, yeah. So even like uh, you know, critics love the Last Jedi. I'm always defending the Last Jedi. Um, I liked it best. Yeah, yeah. Of the new trilogy series. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of sad what they did to Luke, but you know, it's still a good movie. So I mean, look, what they did to Han Solo in the the episode before. Yeah. Was worse. What they. <laughs> What we thought they did to Chewie in the episode yeah. after was even worse than Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, I'm all for killing off main characters. Yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, so I, I I'm always very supportive when they kill off a main character. Uh, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> Especially I, in children's movies. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I will tell you what, I another sidebar away from Psycho for a minute. I um I thought Rogue One was the best of the new Star Wars. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite, personal favorite. Just a I don't care what anybody says. I think it's maybe the most important story in the whole canon. I think a lot of people would agree with you. I think it's the most important. It bridges it bridges uh generations and yeah. eras. It has fresh things to say. Yes, for sure. And they killed off everybody. Everybody gets it in a big nuclear death star blast that's yeah. really sad like emotionally heavy that's how they won my vote <laughs> oh so good so good <laughs> so overall chris if you had to play psycho in a list of best scary movies would it be in your list i would it would definitely be in my top five okay um uh, it would it might probably be three Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Number one is always the whaling. Yep. Two is the exorcist. I feel like three would be alien, but maybe Psycho would take it. Ooh. I don't know. Ooh, I like it. Baba Duke. Yeah, those Baba are Duke. those are the top five. So I'm almost ashamed, almost ashamed to say it. So right now, and it's in its current iteration, Psycho is number twenty two in my top twenty five. That is pretty low, dude. It is, and and you're gonna hate this next statement. You're Wait, gonna hate it. It's it's lower than the first power. <laughs> it is, no, it's so first power is number twenty four. I moved it back, <laughs> and it's like edging its way to the outside the top twenty five. But if I had to pick a movie in my top twenty five, Psycho might be the one that's most likely to leave. Oh, interesting. Because I. I don't think it's – I know it's a horror movie, and I realize it's definitely horror for the era that it was produced and you know released. But I don't classify it personally as horror. Like seeing it again now, yeah, I'm like, this is a great suspense movie. It's a good drama. It's a good thriller, sort of a drama thriller, you know, a crime drama, however you want to categorize But as for horror, there's really only one horror element. Yeah, and that's at the the very end, where it's revealed that Mama's a mummy. Yeah, yeah. You know, so <clears throat> I don't know. Maybe I don't take it out just to avoid the uh, the backlash. I, I don't want to be canceled for my top twenty five list, but it it is most likely to end up out of the top twenty five if yeah. some other things come in. So. I don't know what that says for two weeks from now or a month from now. I don't know what that says because once we watch and review Pooh, Blood and Honey, that might take its place, like, which almost feels sacrilegious. I almost feel like I'm movie heresy at this point. So bad as being <laughs> top 10. <laughs> have, you, have you watched it yet? No, I haven't watched it yet. Uh, I'm going to watch it this week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm scared. Uh, I've got a couple of movies on my list to watch over the next couple of days now that we've got a three-day weekend. Um, there's Pooh, Blood, and Honey. There's a movie called Nef- Nefarious. Yeah. Sounds really interesting. Um, I watched The Pope's Exorcist last week. I mean, what was that? His accent with, is so funny. <laughs> I know. It's so bad. It, the whole movie is just bad, guys. It's. I don't know that there's a single redeeming quality in the movie, honestly. Um. But we've got some really good movies coming up over the next couple of weeks. So you guys stick with us. We're uh, we're hitting our stride. We're, we really feel like things are starting to gel, I think, anyway. I'm doing the editing, and it's like things just – conversation flows easily. It's uh, – sometimes it's just really funny too. <laughs> so, Chris, anything that we missed? Anything that we need to to throw back out there and say, hey, what about this? I don't think so. Maybe it'll come to me next week. <laughs> it, it always will. We always have something. All right, guys. As always, we are appreciative of your support and your listening. We have officially blown way past the 2,000 listens mark. We're actually uh, trending closer to 2,500 than tw- – I mean, it's it's pretty wild how fast those listens are racking up. Um, so – Thank you for that. If you uh, if you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe, like, follow, 
Spotify, Apple Podcasts, definitely leave us the five-star review. Super helpful in the algorithm, the search algorithm to find us. Um, and always word of mouth. That's important too. So if you like what we're doing, pass us along to someone who would also like what we're doing. Uh, if you want to be a guest on the show, and we've had some uh, some folks reach out to us about you know jumping in on an episode, email us, horrorlabpod at gmail.com. Um, we'll throw you on the calendar. We'll pick a movie that you love. We love talking about movies with people who love the movie. So that's what we're about. Um, and follow us on social media, Horror Lab Pod. That's Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and the Horror Lab on Facebook. Guys, as always, thank you for tuning in. We will catch you next week in the Horror Lab. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.